and that's where I ended up in what I think of as a straight track. It's some sort of restraining device. I don't really remember. Uh, shot up in the, you know, now a psychotic to kind of calm me down. And it was just, I, I, I really, I thought that was, it was, I thought I was done. Welcome to the Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health. From depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Welcome to the Depression Files. Our guest tonight is Michael Weinstein. Michael is a doctor. I should have referred to him as Dr. Michael Weinstein. He is actually an acute care surgeon, otherwise known as uh, what I would refer to as an ER surgeon. Um, Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's It's an honor and privilege to be here. Well, I'm really excited to interview you. The first I had heard of you was through the internet, and I read an article um, that you had written about your own story. And first of all, I was really impressed. Um, I have a brother who's a doctor, and I've talked to him often about, you know, are doctors able to take mental health leaves, and what does that mean, and can doctors be on medicines and so forth? So I was just really excited to see an experienced surgeon who was out and open about his story, and I think it's so important. So, again, thank you uh, for being on the show. Thank you. Yeah. One of the things I noticed um, in your article, you had mentioned that it – in in hindsight, it kind of su- shouldn't have surprised you too much that you ended up in a depressive state because you had dealt with depression as a teen. Yeah. Can you tell us uh, how old were you when you first experienced depression? How did you know what was going on and what were your symptoms like? Yes, I mean, you know, certainly looking back, I mean, I think I remember now uh, episodes as certainly a teenager. My first bout of what I think of as a major depressive episode was back in college. Um, uh, after uh, a girlfriend broke up with me and, um, uh, I remember going into a deep, dark, uh, depression, uh, over that winter. And, um, my dad was a family physician and, uh, he happened to have some, I think Prozac was a fairly new drug at the time. Um, I guess this would have been in the uh, in the late '80s, yeah. And um, I must say, Prozac. Uh, I took that for a long, long time after that, and um, it helped me a lot. I, I saw a therapist for a short while. Um, I'm not sure I got a whole lot out of it, but I kind of went on and, and, and lived my life. I had suffered kind of from social anxiety as a young child and teenager, and uh, that persisted well into my 20s and 30s. Um, and I had waxing, waxing and waning, you know, what people call dysthymia or depression um, over, over many years. Can you describe to us, so... I mean, a lot of men have been through a point where they have a bad breakup, it's rough, Mm -hmm. they're sad, um, 
you know, a lot of sadness. What differentiated your depression compared to a normal breakup that's challenging for any guy? Yeah, I, you know, it, I, I must say, so, uh, you know, this is now quite a long time ago. So right. um, my my memory of that time is not great. Um, I, I remember um, kind of feeling very isolated, feeling very uh, uh, negative thoughts about myself. I remember, you know, college, um, I started drinking more heavily, and I, I remember um, kind of, kind of just drinking my sorrows away quite often, uh, spending a lot of time alone, having difficulty, um, engaging with other folks, um, had difficulty simply, simply smiling. Um, that's my recollection. And, you know, just really just, um, my, my mind has always been very self-critical. So if something like that happens, uh, it automatically goes to what's wrong with me and what's, you know, what, 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 uh, why, why am I not like everybody else? You know? Right, right. Uh, and it, which is very, very isolating thoughts. Absolutely. Did you um, get a diagnosis at that point then? I know you mentioned dysthymia. Were you actually yeah. diagnosed with dysthymia? So, um, for better or for worse, uh, you know, my, my father was a physician and had some medication to give me and, um, and uh, I did see a psychologist. I wouldn't. I wasn't. I wouldn't say necessarily that I was diagnosed over that time. And uh, but my my dad had uh, started prescribing um, medication for me. Okay. And, yeah. And you did start to see a therapist as well. You said. Yeah, I remember seeing a therapist for about six months, and I, you know, it, it took me a long time until my more recent bout of of really severe depression that. I finally started to get therapy. Right. Um, you know, I think there's all different sorts of therapists out there and different styles. And, um, you know, much of what I had done in the past had been simply, you know, this idea of just simply talking about things, which I found only partially helpful, you know. Mm-hmm. Medications definitely lifted it. Um but I, you know, looking back, in some ways, I, I wish I, I wish I had been exposed to more, or perhaps other types of therapy and other types of social and um, life skills that um, it took. It's taken me, <laughs> took me fifty years to learn. <laughs> right, right. How long were you on the Prozac for? So, if, as I recall, I was. I mean, you know, that was. I was around 19 or 20 at the time, probably maybe a little bit earlier, maybe right. 2021. 20, and I was on and off Prozac for the next, um, probably 20 years. Okay. Always yeah. kind of under your dad's guidance or through a psychiatrist? Uh, as I recall, eventually I ended up seeing psychiatrists as I, um, um, as I got older, my my father passed away when I was, which was a really hard time as well. Right, just uh, a month before I got married, um, I was a second year resident, so that was in '95, and um, I was around 27. And uh, I started seeing, I think, uh, you know, some getting some professional help uh, thereafter. I think I remember reading in your article that third-year residency was a pretty stressful time for you as well, where you kind of felt like 
you weren't weren't really cutting it yeah yeah you know as a, as a resident in surgery you start getting increasing responsibility and especially at that time and um start you know it's when when in medicine when things don't go perfectly many of us um blame ourselves even though um sure there are medical errors as as uh, you'll you'll find in the media and then things don't always go perfectly as we're because we're all human but at the same time you know and not every disease process is easy to treat either and um when things go when things don't go well when you don't have the best outcome um it's sometimes as i find especially as a surgeon uh easy to point my own finger at myself and find the things that well i could have done this better or i could have done that better and um so i had a couple of difficult cases when i was a third year resident uh, in a in a brief period of time that really made me doubt whether or not i should um I should be doing this, and um, uh, I didn't know. I didn't know. You know. Thank goodness you know, my, for my wife, who uh, has always been my absolute pillar um, of support. But uh, it was it was difficult. I, uh, I I didn't know how to ask for help from my colleagues or senior residents in terms of um, how to su- support me and to. Learn how to, you know, to 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 cope with that type of problem, and to, to and you look around and you think that everyone's got it together, and you think that everyone's, you know, not having these thoughts, and so you feel as though you you start getting again that those isolating thoughts of feeling like, what's wrong with me? I'm the only one that's thinking this way, or I'm the only, am I the only one that's, you know, having these problems? So when you say you didn't really know how to ask, it seems more like there was almost a fear or a concern of asking sure i mean you know the the stigma of thinking either one i'm a bad surgeon or the, that i have these thoughts about myself that are unkind or that i'm you know that i have depression uh, i mean i hid my depression really until this last severe bout that i've written about you know more publicly um out of fear for of being judged and um and not being accepted. Right. I think the, you know, the, the way you describe beating yourself up and such, I think is pretty common for men who have been through depression. They seem to be the type of people who are hard on themselves. I know that's exactly how I am. And especially once a bit of depression creeped in, then I, and I would imagine others become even more hypercritical of yourself and any little comment somebody would make, I would spin it in my head as they're talking about me. I'm the leader right. here. They're, they're, you know, they're concerned about the schedule. Well, I'm the leader. That's they're really complaining about me. And I would take a lot of the blame and heat for stuff in my own head, and that was detrimental for me as well. Yeah, I mean, you talk about leadership. That was certainly a, a big issue for me. You know, in more in more recent past, as you start to take on those types of roles. And you do hear even just the smallest comment. You think uh, that that's that's all about me, and uh, I think it's it's extraordinarily common, um, probably for people with and without depression. But when you're you know you have certain susceptibilities, uh, you're more likely to dive into some rabbit hole. Right, right. 
I, I've even written a post about um, a perfectionist, or maybe I maybe it's one of my drafts. But um, I feel like there's this the the quality of being a perfectionist can be very hurtful and detrimental mm-hmm. because you're creating these incredibly high goals that are unattainable for the most part. And then you don't reach them and then you beat yourself up because you didn't reach your goal and it wasn't perfect. Um, It seems like a quality of many people who end up going through depression. So you made it through your third year. It sounds like your wife helped you get through the third year. And you know, I was also just thinking about the fact that you had mentioned how your dad had passed away and that was difficult for you. I wonder if, that had something to do with the depression kind of, you know, creeping up on you as well and impacting your mental health as well as going through the challenging piece of residency. So, yeah, that was, that was a really, I mean, you know, it it took me a long time to recover from my father's death. Um, and that, on top of um, the the strains of of, of surgery and um, the work hours, the, the the pressure that we do put on ourselves in terms of as you're as you're putting it, this perf- these perfectionist tendencies of uh, you know thinking that you know you, you do set certain standards or goals and the. I mean, I, I, to this day, I still need to be careful and mindful uh, and pay attention to how I'm thinking about things because I always want, you know, to do things in some big, grandiose way. And um, I know I can be very disappointed if, if things don't work out. And uh, But, my, you know, the loss of my father was really, really, really hard because I would – every new milestone in my life, I would look back and say, oh, I wish my dad was here to see this. He would be so proud. And, um, you know, whether it was the, the birth of my son a few years later, um, even just, gra- you know, graduating residency, um, graduating each year to a new position in, in residency. It's, um, all, all those different aspects of, of life that, uh, he died very suddenly, and um, so it was. It, it, it took. It took. I would say a good three to four years to stop simply crying each time those moments came up, um, and still to this day, I have, I have periods where, if I, I you know, remember him in a certain way, that um, um, you know, it, it, it's hard. It, it's a. It, it was a really tough loss, and putting that on top of everything was uh it, it took a long time to get through were you able to work through it at all with any kind of therapy so i you know i i'm trying to think back to that time and um you know I, i'm thinking that during remember trying to remember back during surgery residency there really was not there wasn't there's no, there was no time built in for any kind of self-care or, or I, I don't think I was actually seeing any kind of physicians uh, um, or therapists during that time right uh, for the next so for the next few years and maybe even into my uh, it, it took actually it was it was a number of years until I actually started to connect with uh, therapists and and, and um, 
uh, and get some professional help. I think there was some self-prescribing. There was um, there was uh, self-medication, and you know, uh, in terms of alcohol use, and um, it was a tough time. When you when you finally did when I look back into it now, yeah. Yeah, when you finally did reach out and, and have a therapist, did you ever actually talk through the whole period of grief of your dad's passing? I, I you know, I think you know, there's um I often say, you know, time does heal. And I I, I think with you know, with, with myself and my wife and uh persistence um i managed to get through it I, I don't know how much i truly processed it in therapy um you know i'm starting to think of more recent times before i got before i really kind of fell off the cliff a couple of years ago um that i was still processing that uh as i recall uh, my my memory is is sometimes a little bit blurry because I, you know, I did have ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, and so I, I do have some memory loss of different periods of my life, unfortunately. Right. And, uh, um, so that 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 is a little bit challenging. Yeah. And, uh, oh no, no uh, problem. At times, upsetting for me. So, so I, I I don't recall specifics about that, to be honest with you, in terms of how I ended up dealing with that. It it you know I think it just took it just took time. Right. Right. Hey, just, um, you know, a lot of listeners, I think people have all heard about the challenges of residency and long hours and such. Can you give people just a sense of just how challenging um, residency can be, particularly for a surgeon? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's a, there's a, I won't, I won't be able to quote it exactly, but the, the you know, the idea that, you know, hard work and long hours don't necessarily lead to burnout and depression, but how we deal with it does, and having time built in to actually deal with it is important. So, uh, unfortunately, especially back back then, um, you know, there, there's been some positive change in terms of how residents are trained in terms of the hours. Um, and many people are familiar with kind of work hour restrictions that began in New York with the idea of, of restricting the number of hours per week to 80 hours per week, which in and of itself sounds ludicrous. But I can oh tell you, God, we, yes. I worked many more than that. Um, so, you know, during my residency, it was it was not uncommon to have periods of every other night call. And that what that means is that you know, you, so we start off Monday morning, and if I'm on call Monday, I go in at probably 6 a.m. or earlier, work the entire day and night. Now, you, it's possible you may get some sleep there at night, depending on whether it's busy or not, but many times it's busy, so you're up all night, and then work a few more hours at least the next day, and back then we didn't even... You know, to today, if you're on call for a 24-hour period, you generally leave the next morning. Back then, we would stay a good portion of the day, go home, try and get some rest, and then come back the next day and potentially do that all over again. Um, there were even times where we would do 48 hours on call 
and then try and have 48 hours off so that at least you could have a more extended period of time away and off. Um, that is a lot, lot of hours. It, it was, it, it was, it was truly, truly crazy. And, and, you know, and then most, most every weekend, um, at least around call one evening, if not, if not in, in the hospital for a good portion of the weekend. So, it was just a lot of hours and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of, um, seeing people who are, are sick and suffering, um, on a daily basis and trying to, you know, trying to meet their needs, trying to, and then as a resident, you're kind of in between, you're in between these, you know, the senior physicians who are directing things and very little control over your time and your hours and, and exactly your tasks for the job. And, so it's you know it, I, it was interesting we we had recently our first um, uh, these aren't real common for residencies you know you think about them in terms of you know college and medical school and reunions we had a reunion for our residency and it was actually really neat I, I haven't really gone to many reunions in my life but um, I went to this one actually I, I, mean, I spoke a little bit about kind of what we're talking about now but. Um, you know, it was like it was like being with a bunch of of, of of back then it was mostly guys. Well, I'll say guys, but it was like being with a bunch of guys who you'd been through almost a war with. You know, we'd you get to know each other really well, rely on each other really well, all kinds of you know memories and stories. Um, so it was really neat. I mean, it, you know, it was a really close bonding time. But it's it was, and in many ways that you know that that's what gets you through it. But at the same time. At least for me, you know, it was a pretty manly time, manly group of people, uh, especially surgeons. Um, and uh, I didn't always feel like I felt it fit in. I, you know, I often, you know, I felt like my emotionality sometimes was different than others. And um, so, you know, the hours and then the, the sickness that you see and any, any time, you know, when, when patients aren't doing well it's easy to take it both personally sometimes there's blame placed um by others uh so it's it is it's a it's a it's a it's a very challenging very challenging period in life and, you know sometimes they say that yeah, you go through that so that you can do it in the future and it builds character etc but uh i think there are certainly better ways um to do it and we're you know so there's certainly been some reform um to make it more humane right you know, a couple things come to mind. One is I want to make sure I didn't want to interrupt you, but I want to make sure listeners understand that when you're on call and you, you mentioned it, but you are actually there on call means you are there, hopefully catching a couple hours of sleep in between right. people coming in. In my mind, before my brother was ever on call, I always thought on call meant you're at home, you know, and you have your pager and if, mm -hmm. if they buzz you, you go in. But but typically, on call means you are actually there, so you're at work. Yeah, for for the most part, especially as a resident, you're on call means in the hospital. Right. For 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 some groups of physicians like myself, you know, we so I do. I'm a acute care surgeon, um, trauma surgeon. So we we do take. I still take in house calls. So I'm, I still take 24 hour um, plus, you know, sometimes 30 hour calls. Uh, as an attending senior surgeon in house, um, and do try do try and get some sleep. <laughs> I have a pull out couch in my office. That's how that's how we do it. Oh my goodness! 
Hey, you know, this makes me think how you had mentioned that there were periods of time where you were self-medicating, meaning hitting the bottle or drinking. drinking. Um, mm-hmm. How were you able to manage that enough so that you knew, like, if you were going to get called in or you were able to manage that so you never went in intoxicated, I'm imagining? So especially especially back then, when you're when I was off, I was off. Right. Um, so, um, yeah. Although you know, for, for me, it's it's always always it was never a um, it never folded over to the job. But certainly okay. there are concerns about that, and and uh, you know, physicians perhaps more than other um, folks have certainly higher. We know that we have higher rates of depression and suicide, but also problems with substance use. So right. it is an issue. The other thing I, I wanted to mention, just, you know, you talk about the stress and how sometimes, I mean, you do whatever in the world is, is possible and you still might lose a patient. Mm-hmm. And in my mind as an educator, I always talk about how we learn from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. And as a surgeon, you just don't have that option without dealing with possibly the death of a human being. Yeah. Yeah. So we have mechanisms to learn and, and, and I think we're a little bit better now about truly learning from those in supportive ways. Um, you know, back then I recall it being one again, it can be, you know, self-criticism kind of inhibits learning and certainly criticism from others and, and around, depending on how it's done, and surgeons can just be a tough crew. So we can be pretty hard on each other uh, when things don't go well or when there is a, you know, what, what, what people could consider a medical error of some sort. Um, we can be pretty harsh on each other rather than trying to figure out, okay, how can we make it better? Right. And you think that's gotten better in the recent It's definitely days. gotten better. You know, the... Uh, you know, the, the safety culture and what we've learned from other uh, industries, for instance, the airline industry, that, you know, that in terms of how to promote a, a culture of safety, um, we've, we've moved um, in many ways. And I, I personally have worked very hard on, on trying to help build that as well. And um, so we're, we're definitely better. But, you know, there's, there's plenty of room for improvement as well. Right. With those long, incredibly long hours and oftentimes lack of sleep and such. Did you ever see anybody or did you experience falling asleep at the, at a surgery? <laughs> um, I certainly recall uh, at, um, assisting in falling asleep at, at one surgery um, as a second or third year resident. Um, most of the time, the, the rush of surgery <laughs> keeps that from happening. Yeah. Um, I certainly have had issues with falling asleep at the wheel in the past, um, you know, driving. And um, uh, I've certainly had issues of falling asleep and not, you know, uh, having a hard time waking up to a page. Um, uh, I, you know, I feel as though I've, I've lived with sleep deprivation, deprivation for a very long time. Um, I do have a, and, uh, a buddy who yeah. was, was a uh, is an orthopedic surgeon, and he did share with me that during his residency, he got nudged by somebody to wake him up as he was standing there and falling asleep. Yeah, 
So I would imagine it's not unheard of. Yeah, especially if, you're, if you happen to be standing and just kind of holding retractors and not not doing something very active within the surgery, um, they've certainly fallen asleep. So. Right. So it sounds like your wife helped you make it through your third year of residency. You then you plugged away. It sounds like from what I read for a good 16 mm-hmm. years, just it sounds like probably masking your depression, but still having periods of depression, it sounds like, or even continual with dysthymia. Yeah, definitely. And definitely had periods of, um, pretty, pretty deep depression where, you know, and, and I would engage in therapy and, um, you know, I would have maybe have a change of medication, would see the psychologist for a while, would feel better and kind of let that fade. Did you have to hide that from colleagues? Uh, I, 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 I did not I did not let uh, yeah I mean I would say I definitely um I de- no I would say I definitely hit it right um I, w- I was embarrassed I, w- I you know I felt it was I thought it was a sign of weakness um, which is kind of a common phrase in our culture uh, especially back then um, and um, and uh, you know I had I had trouble. One sometimes just finding the time to engage in therapy, and also uh, feeling comfortable engaging in, in therapy. Um, for so I would be I would go for a while and then stop and um, prescribe my own medication and continue it. Uh, sometimes I would stop taking it altogether. Um, it was um, yeah, not always the healthiest lifestyle. Yeah, I was just going to say, it doesn't sound like the healthiest way of managing your mental illness. Um, But, you know, I can completely relate for me, even just scheduling appointments that always seemed to have to be during the day for me Mm -hmm. was anxiety provoking. Uh, I was trying to figure out when when will I schedule this for? What do I tell staff that I'm leaving for? not, Not for a district meeting. How do I do this? And if I have to go, you know twice in two weeks then what am i saying i'm doing and it gets and looks more suspicious so that was really that alone was even more anxiety provoking for me which was challenging to deal with on its own so you make it through you get to this point tell us about uh, the period just before the breaking point so this is this is a period that i have in some ways um in some ways least memory i think i you know it's 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 the, a lot of that i think was is the memory in some ways has been masked by both depression and perhaps taken away a little bit by the ect but um you know i was i was i was uh, at that point so this is in 2015 and i got into a fairly deep depression the medications were just didn't quite quite seem to be helping, and I was in therapy, and I was in a leadership position, and I, you know, my mind can it, it can be very critical, so it can see all the problems um, in the kind of the system of medicine and how uh, the hospital works, how education works for our residents and medical students, and can be very critical and 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 see problems and and put a lot of that blame on myself as a potential, you know, someone who's trying to 
make it better or lead in. I, I, you know, I led our surgical intensive care unit and led a fellowship and led, um, uh, was engaged in medical student education and, um, as well as starting to, um, uh, uh, I was started, had started to co-chair an ethics committee as well within our hospital. So I, I was taking on a, a lot of different responsibilities because I, you know, I, I get interested in a lot of different aspects of medicine and surgery and education and but a thing as you were alluding to if things don't go really well i get i blame myself for all everything that's going on and um it all just added up and added up together and i i was in this state of depression i was we had you know we had two teenage children um you know, you start to blame yourself, thinking that you know, you're not the greatest parent, you're not the greatest husband. Now, I could find failure in every single aspect of my life, and um, therapy wasn't working, or my medications weren't working, and I was just more and more and more hating my work, hating to go to work, um, having difficulty engaging at work, uh, and feeling more and more thoughts of suicide. But at the same time, at least at that point, knew, knew that, you know, I absolutely loved my wife and kids and knew at that point, I knew it would be bad for them if I killed myself. And I knew that I needed to just keep persisting and, um, Finally, I mean, it just I got to a point where I just really could, I mean, I really could barely, it was a struggle to get myself to work, it was a struggle to do anything at work. I would call my wife crying every day, and uh, people around me, I, I learned in retrospect, were really worried. Um, and uh, I remember one day I was, uh, you know, I was assigned to round in the intensive care unit. I just felt like I just could not do it anymore. And I called my wife crying. And she said, listen, we're going to see uh, George. He's my family doctor and a close colleague of myself and my wife. And um, thank goodness he said, listen, you just got to, you got to stop working. You got to, you got to go take care of yourself. And uh, it was a scary, I mean, it was so, it was, it was like a relief to say, because I, I knew, I knew I couldn't do this anymore. I couldn't work like the way I was working anymore. I couldn't work anymore. But at the same time, I really thought, I thought that was going to be the end of my career. I thought that, um, I didn't know what people were going to think about me, uh, in, especially in my world of surgery, what they would think uh, about my weakness of needing to leave, um, did you then make a decision to take time off? So he, he said, listen, I'm putting you, I'm, you, you have to take time off. I'm putting you out on medical leave. And at that point, my wife had already started talking to my psychiatrist um, about what, what we should do. And we, we, you know, we decided um, to go into inpatient therapy. Right. So how long, uh, how long was the inpatient? So I was an inpatient uh, for about three months. Um, an inpatient meaning you stayed there, right? You stayed there, um, I stayed there. Yeah. day in, day out. You never, no time at home. No, it was, um, 
you know, it was a, it was a place a couple hours away from home, and uh, which was really hard. Um, you know, we I think we tried to make the best decision for my wife and, and my, especially my you know my psychiatrist, and I was really kind of just I, at that point I, I was I was willing to do anything that they told me to do, and um, so I went inpatient. They you know they saw that I was so ill and not not responding. I had tried you know we had tried. A bunch of different medication changes and nothing was working so they quickly recommended electric convulsive therapy ct and i started that and about two weeks into that therapy i was i got i got even i got one delirious um developed some delirium and then and developed a very very deep depression to the point that they you know this was an elective kind of private inpatient stay that they ended up uh, committing me to the a locked ward um, for a week, um, which was the scariest. Uh, that was pretty scary. <laughs> scariest point in my life, perhaps. What was that like? So I, I had sunken into my bed. I wouldn't get out of the bed in my in this hospital, and I stopped eating. Um, I had actually I walked out the day before. I you know you, you, technically you need to alert someone that you're leaving, and but it, but you could come and go potentially um but there was this whole whole procedure to do that and i had kind of wandered off so they got really worried that i was gonna who knows do you know do what um that i was you know i certainly was suicidal but i i didn't really have any plans to do anything but i you know they, so they came in and said listen you either just start participating in this whole program which i had withdrawn from or we're going to take you away. And they, uh, you know, they were, they ended up getting like five security guards and I, I got pretty active. <laughs> I got very angry and agitated and, uh, fought quite hard. So it took them, uh, it took a lot of effort on, um, several security guards, uh, to get me, uh, through that period and, you know, out of that ward and into a, the attached hospital where there was a locked ward where, um, uh, and that's where I ended up in what I think of as a straight track and some sort of restraining device. I don't really remember, and, uh, shot of an, you know, an antipsychotic to kind of calm me down. And it was just, I, I, I really, I thought that was, it was, I thought I was done. I mean, I, I, I didn't know what to do, and I somehow I, I, I that in some ways you know it gave me the motivation to say okay I gotta do something just to get out of here I gotta get out of this place because um, that was it was a that was a, a tough position to be in. Yeah. So in this lockdown portion could you leave your room but you couldn't leave past the end of the hallway um, yeah i mean initially, initially i was in an isolation cell until i finally calmed down and uh they let me out and then you have the bare minimum i mean it's i mean to me it was like it was like a prison i mean it was like the bare minimum to you know for safety um in a room um and uh yeah you can't it's it's you do have an individual room, as I recall, um, but you can't leave the kind of the common area um, or your room um, that 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 location at all. And uh, and is that week really just about 
keeping you safe and isolated? That was for my. It was for my safety. They were they were concerned that they didn't have the resources or the ability to keep me safe. And um, you know, I get it. Um, uh, Probably no therapy or anything going on during that week. No, I mean, I saw you know. So there was a, a different psychiatrist. Um, it was a psychiatrist on the, on that ward. And they would take me from there, and still get, I still got my ECT that week. And um, you know, I I realized that the only way I was going to get out of that position was to change my behavior, to go along with the program. It motivated me enough to go along with the program so that I could get out of there because <laughs> right. uh, it was just really scary. It was you know, it was, uh, and I, I hate to even talk in these terms and I have spent so my wife and I I mean and my wife works um, with folks with very serious mental illness and homelessness and uh, we started a medical outreach clinic together in, in, in medical school when we met but um, you know, I was with a group of people who many of which were right off the street and uh, it was very humbling um, and difficult, you know. <laughs> I remember a couple of guys. I got to know them, you know, but they, they they thought I was some undercover cop <laughs> in, this, in this ward, and uh, uh, it was just it was just a really it was a really challenging and scary time, and uh, uh, you know you get to see things from the other side that um, many of us in medicine don't necessarily see or witness. Right. Were you completely out of touch with your wife at this point then? So my wife, um, she tried to talk to me a little bit on the phone uh, before they actually committed me, and then she, she drove right down, and she was able to visit me. Um, yeah, she, I mean, my wife is an absolute saint. Yeah, sounds like it. If I, didn't, if, I didn't, if I hadn't had her in my life, I wouldn't be here today. Um, right. Can you um, explain for the listeners what, if you remember, what exactly receiving ECT is like these days? Because I know a lot of people get the image of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which uh, I know it's very different these days. I'm wondering if you could just share kind of the process and what that was like. Yeah, so I mean, they would uh, I would go off to uh, a small procedure room. Um, they would uh, give me some medicine. I would fall asleep. Um, they would do their thing. So they provide, you know, they, they apply some electricity to the brain uh, with the intent of causing a seizure. Um, but I would then wake up and not know um, anything, not feel anything, um, no, no pain, no, no issues. I remember, I mean, just I just remember going to sleep and then waking up. Um, it did. It did cause. Uh, you know, I had pretty aggressive treatments uh, in a relatively short period of time, so it did cause some um, confusion and uh, and which may have related to the deepening of the depression. And then, you know, it did. It did help in the short term. Um, you know, I did recover and get out of that hospital uh, and got. I was feeling pretty good uh, for a short while. Um, but it was, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know, you know, there's, 
I want to be careful how I speak about it. I, it, it. When I look back at ECT, I, in some regards, I honestly wish I, I didn't go through that. I think it was part of my journey, and I, it probably helped in some way, and it certainly, definitely helped in the short term. Um, I'm sometimes bothered by some of the memory loss, um, and it took me a while to I, – I feel as though it took a while – a long while for my brain to truly recover from that but um but it's certainly not uh it's not there it was not painful it wasn't um uh it, it's not as uh uh barbaric as it looks in some of those older movies yeah right right do you recall how long each session was and about how many different sessions of ect you had yeah, I had I had uh, a total of around fifteen sessions, and it was about three times. Well, every other day, so maybe I had about twelve. It must have been about four weeks. Wow! Um, each session, I mean, I think it was you know, the actual session is probably five ten minutes, um, but. Um, you know, it's, I'm just, it's a drama, just reflecting. I mean, there were times when I was in that deep depression that I was, I was kind of hopeful that I would go to sleep and not wake up. Um, right. Yeah. You, know. you know, that uh, reminds me about a question I wanted to go back to, if you don't mind. You had mentioned, because yeah. um, I, I think this is really important for listeners to understand when it comes to suicidal thoughts. You had mentioned that you had some suicidal thoughts, but you also realized that you could not do that to your family. Mm -hmm. I, I do remember in your reading and mm -hmm. I remember it so vividly because it's, it rung so true for me. And I don't think we're the only two who experienced this, right. but you get to a point where you literally feel like you're a burden to the family. You're a burden to work and that everybody would be so much better off without you. And I yeah. think that's the real, real dangerous point. And I think that's why you hear stories of people who say, I would never do it because of my family. And then mm -hmm. they tragically take their own life. Yeah. Um, and it was the first time where I actually experienced that and couldn't believe I had four little kids. And I was thinking for sure I was going to take my life. Yeah. I was certain. Yeah. So I, you know, I recovered for a little while after that hospitalization, uh, actually went back to work and, uh, ended up ha having developing severe for the first time in my life, really severe anxiety. And then the depression really, really set in, um, other issues developed. I ended up going back out of work and, uh, it got worse and worse and I, I would not go back in the hospital because uh, it, it was just such a scary thing for me. Um, How long were you back at work? Uh, just about a month. Okay. Just about a month, yeah. So I'd been out for three months or so or a little bit longer, went back for a month and then uh, for the next uh, two, three months I was out again and what was it like? really what got... Before you get into that depression, I'm sorry, yeah. but, but what was that like returning after um, a month's stay in a hospital? And did you share with people, or what was the return to work like? So um, I, I did share with people initially uh, a bit. 
Um, and I was feeling really good just as I was getting back to work. And just as I got back to work, I just started to notice that oh, something was not feeling right. And then I just started to have this crippling anxiety, like every single decision I would make or every single um, action I would make was was grueling. Like, I, you know, I, I developed a fair amount of experience by then. And um, before I had gotten sick, like I didn't have much concerns about my medical decision making. But all of a sudden, everything was like challenging. And, um, at the same time, I also was like, I, you know, I came back and three months later and it was like, I came back a little bit earlier than I had planned. And it was like, ah, they don't really need me that much. Like, I'm not that important, you know, <laughs> like, right. like, um, and feeling really bad about that. Like, what am I doing? I don't have anything to do here today. Uh, you know, and if I wasn't keeping myself active, I would just get in these, you know, these mind games with myself about, you know, finding all kinds of fault and criticism. And um, it just got worse and worse and worse and um, to the point where I couldn't bear to be there. And I, um, we had some other things going on in our family and uh, I ended up going back out. And and that's when, you know, the, those suicidal thoughts really started to come back. And this was starting in the summer. And I recall being feeling like, you know, just as you're saying, feeling like, you know, here I am, I'm acting this way, I'm here, I, you know, I can barely get out of bed, I can barely do anything, I can barely help my wife, my kids, I am a burden, I am, I am actually making life more miserable for them. Um, you know, I remember, I guess, you know, in some ways, I don't know if I was asking for permission from my wife, but I remember trying to ask her, you know, what is this life insurance about? Like, if I kill myself, do you still get the money? Like, will you be taken care of? And, um, and then it got, I mean, it, it got even worse after that, where I truly, I definitely had plans and I was figuring it out how I'm going to do this and when, and, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I, I was finally, I, you know, I was at least able to tell my wife that that, these things were going on and she, they found ways to find, make sure that I was, you know, my mom, who's, <laughs> she's going to turn 80 this coming year. She babysat me. All right. uh, and, uh, um, you know, we found ways to keep me safe. Uh, and somehow, somehow, somehow I went on each day. Uh, you know, people talk about the courage of trying to tell my story. The courage is really, living another hour or living another day because it, uh, it sounds like you've experienced this but that that psychological pain that I, I don't really even know how to describe but feeling like you are absolutely worthless and that the entire world would be better without you is so painful I, have, I, I don't think I've really experienced severe physical pain in my life I mean I've had some issues at times with pain but that psychological pain was unbelievable and I, I don't even know how to relate it, but, um, that was, that was, uh, I, I try and hold on to remember that because of, cause I, I, you know, I think of how our brain is amazing and how powerful it can be at telling us these lies. Um, and I want to remember that and remember that it was lies. You know? 
Yeah, it really it really is incredible. And I did end up journaling about my very plan, my thoughts and everything yeah. because I was kind of the same way. And I, I think I did almost exactly what you're talking about, like talking to my wife and talking about essentially asking permission. And I know when I got better, I pretty much, I didn't make her, but I strongly urged her to see a therapist because I'm sure she was going through some of her own PTSD of dealing with me and comments like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as hard as it has been for many of us, um, those of us who have wives or other, um, significant others, uh, the toll it takes on them is, is really significant as well. And um, I think it's important to remember and honor that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some of the the challenges you had now in just describing the feeling and everything, that's like one of my big goals by having the Depression Files podcast. Like, I think there's a misconception that depression is equals sadness and i try to explain that that is so off base that sometimes it isn't even a sadness it's more of a numbness and it Mm -hmm. is and it can be so painful and so debilitating and i don't think that if you've been in that place you can really understand that feeling yeah yeah forever like you know that i remember that fall leading up to um this this episode when I was severely depressed, it was all numbness. It was all just being withdrawn, um, and and at times numbing myself. But um, uh, that period that summer was that it was just severe, unrelenting pain. Of uh, and I, I as as you I think alluded to earlier, like. You know, I would wake up at three in the morning and just be in pain. Um, I couldn't sleep, um, but would lie in bed for days. And um, but in it was it was pain. It was I yeah it really it's really hard to describe, but it was I describe it as severe pain. Yeah, yeah. So your first depression, you spoke about you did you did take time off. You went inpatient. What did you do at this point where it sounds like it was a much worse depression? Yeah. I mean, fortunately I had a really great, um, therapist, uh, CBT and mindfulness oriented. Um, I was seeing her two, sometimes three times a week. Um, that was, that was extraordinarily helpful. I was, um, seeing a psychiatrist who was, uh, we were, changing medications and i was doing a lot of i was grasping reading for any finding anything that could possibly help and um um at some point it it started to slowly very slowly lift and at some point i I remember actually i think it was when I i started reading about um act uh acceptance commitment therapy and the notion that you know, we have some control or at least can develop awareness and understanding about our thoughts and how our brains work and that maybe these thoughts are truly just thoughts. And that was really novel for me because people would try and tell me, oh, I've been, you know, I know what you're going through or it's going to get better. It always gets better. You know, you just have to hang in there. And I just, I thought, 
you know, my, my grandfather suffered from depression, especially at least from what I know, uh, after he retired, he was kind of forced into retirement. And then for my entire life, you know, the last 20, 30 years of his life, he was in this depression. Um, and I thought I was, I thought I was, that was it. I was done. I was in stage depression. This is how I was going to live the rest of my life in this pain. And, uh, but something slightly shifted, like this idea that perhaps the way in which we can think about things can alter the way in which we think about things. Right. And um, and it started just to open up a small little crack, and it, you know, I started reading different things, and um, you know, a bunch of cycling with changing medications, and probably one last medication change helped a little bit open those doors as well and then i i um started to understand a little bit more about cbt and then i started learning about uh, mindfulness and um that really opened it's really it's changed my entire life and outlook it's um and i think i think you know getting through that persisting through that and then recovering, I remember. I remember very clearly one day, leaving actually in my psychiatrist's office and feeling better. And I texted my wife the first time. I said, "Listen, I am so happy to be alive today." And um, and I'll remember that forever. And I remember that every day. And I I'm thankful. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that I did for whatever reasons I did not act on all those suicidal thoughts of absolute despair because there's so much to life that is so enjoyable. And that's, I mean, that's the message I want to try and get out to as many people as possible because as bad as it seems, I know, I know there is hope and joy for everybody. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so it's, it sounds like you really kind of dove into researching and focusing on your recovery the entire time you were out. Did you have days that were just such a struggle that you couldn't get off the couch or out of bed? Were there days intermittently like that as well? Because the way you talk about it, it really sounds like, you know, you were at the computer maybe reading about CBT, learning um, about a new therapy, all this stuff. But you also talked about no, how, how yeah. deep your depression was. And for me, when my depression was that deep, I couldn't even read because I couldn't focus. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm sorry if it even sounds that way because it wasn't. <laughs> um, it, it, I mean, it was, it was days on end of really, I mean, people would forced me to get out of bed I, I couldn't get out of bed um uh you know uh, there were i mean endless days that i spent in bed could not get out uh i could read um i can't remember i found some the only things i could read at that point were some murder mysteries or something like that that would get me it would actually distract me from my thoughts for a little while um but at the same time i you know people would i guess bring me different books or i'd find different books and i would try and read and at some point again the, i think a medication shift helped me to start being able to actually 
investigate different things and um but it was not uh it was a it was a really really hard period of time with a lot of pushing from a lot of different people um since the, you had had the experience of being at an inpatient program, did you mm-hmm. ever did you consider doing another type of program, whether it was a partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, or or anything along those lines? Like, what was yeah. the decision about staying home on your own and, yeah. and working at it? Yeah, I was really scared uh, to go back in a hospital based on that that previous experience. Um, I was really scared to think about you know because they, they had actually suggested i do maintenance ect and i had seen a local physician uh who thought i was doing so well i didn't need it and then i got really scared about doing going back and doing that we had you know my, my wife was looking at different things we had looked into you know potentially doing ect potentially going back in the hospital there were several points where we were really concerned about my safety and and we're very close to going back in the hospital but i i was really really resistant and scared and um uh i remember looking into partial hospitalizations or my wife did and i i think we had trouble finding something that seemed workable or doable um so i was just really you know my myself and my wife were really in close contact with my therapist quite often um, who was just extraordinary in helping us. Um, and I would, you know, I, I, some, I was motivated enough to get to see her again. I mean, I think it was two or three times a week at times, um, during that really critical period. And, um, we just kept persisting. And again, I was, I was fortunately in a state where I was able to at least talk with my wife about some of these thoughts I was having uh, because that's what kept me safe. Right, right. I could definitely understand the fear of going back into any kind of program after the experience that you had had. Um, Do you think that you had any kind of PTSD based upon that first experience? Yeah, I mean, I would think of it that way. I don't know, you know, I, I, I was, especially as being a physician, I would be careful. I don't, you know, I don't know all the diagnostic criteria and all that. Right. Um, right. So, but um, it's not your field. <laughs> I, I think. I think certainly there was some. There was. I mean, there was some very deep seated fear of being in a hospital. Right. Um, that maybe was warranted. Maybe not. You know. I mean. Uh, again, I think. The hospital certainly serves some purpose for me, and some is definitely part of my journey. Right. So then you talked about the depression lifting. You were out for a few months, and then you made a return back to work. I did. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, it was amazing. I, mean, I, I really suddenly started. You know, I, I started. Um, reading a lot about about uh, Eastern philosophies and religions and, and, and mindfulness and was able to start just being in that present moment and really finding the joy in life. Um, not that it was, you know, you know especially going to return to your work, not necessarily that was easy, but it was, 
I was suddenly able to find find joy, which um, I hadn't experienced in so long. True joy, and um, I, you know, I eased I eased back into work, and and you know, thought a lot about the different different roles I was playing and different aspects of my job, and and I'm still in evolution trying to figure out, you know, what what is most meaningful and 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 what ways of working are, are best for me. Um, I did go back and eventually tell my story initially to my department because um, I knew that people would be thinking about what happened to me, where I was, what was going on, um, and who knows what type of, type of stories they might tell. Right. Uh, so I thought it would be important, one, just to let people know, and then two, to let people know that you can be in a really bad place and recover and, and, and get through things. And, um, it was really well received and I, you know, I started writing and, uh, which was helpful just to kind of try and make sense of my experience and make sense of what happened to a certain degree, still working on that. Um, which is what led me to, you know, writing my article and publishing it and trying to, you know, my, in many ways, much of my work, um, I try to, figure out and trying to work on figuring out how to help other healthcare providers um, take better care of themselves and how to help maybe avoid folks going down the same type of path that I went down. Right. So I don't know if this is possible for you to really articulate, but I do want to ask the question, how do you make the connection between mindfulness and such happiness? Um, so mindfulness practice to me is, um, you know, it's about paying attention in the present moment without judgment and the without judgment part is really critical for me. Um, I think as, as for many of us who have suffered from depression, um, because our minds are so judgmental and oftentimes about ourselves, although I've also noticed that I can be fairly judgmental about, about other people as well. And so one, removing some of that judgment and expectations and attachment to, you know, am I doing a good job or not good job? Like I'm just trying to live my life in the best possible way. Um, but then being attuned to the present moment without, and, and remembering remembering it's a funny way to say it in some ways but um paying attention to thoughts and realizing one they're just they're just thoughts like it's that your mind is good at just generating all kinds of thoughts and judgments recognizing when i'm ruminating or when i'm thinking about trying to plan for the future or evaluating the past and just coming to the present moment like there's so much beauty and joy that can be appreciated right in front of you that um I had never had a sense of before in my entire life um, and that we could potentially be missing out on all sorts of things that are happening right now in this present moment because we're so focused on what happened before or what we're, what's going to happen in the future. And um, I can find just tremendous joy in, in that and, and the joy again in just being just so happy to be here and, and alive and not having taken my life. Right. I, too, am a big believer in mindfulness and 
one example I have is just like sitting down and playing cards with my kids and mm-hmm. I'll now catch myself when I start thinking about work or something else mm-hmm. and I refocus and literally tell myself inside my head, stop and enjoy this game and enjoy my kids. Right. Um, and it is really powerful. I've read some research that talks about mind wandering and how um, a huge percentage of our thoughts are negative, typically. Mm-hmm. What do you have to do at work? What do you forget to do? What do you got to do when you get home? Right. Rather than focusing on the here and now. And yeah. one of my uh, one of my blog posts, actually, I kind of make a joke out of it because it's mindfulness in the shower. Um, but I really mm-hmm. do think that in the shower is a great place to practice mindfulness. One, I think there's a lot of um, mind wandering that happens when you're just sitting there in the shower. And then also there are so many sensations you can really focus on to be present in the moment. The hot water mm-hmm. running down your back or pounding on your head, the sounds, um, and so many different sensations that I think it's a great way to practice really being in the moment and mindfulness and shutting down your other thoughts. And I've gotten to the point there too, where automatically if I go into a thought, I'll stop myself. And I've loved that feeling because it tells me like, wow, all this practice and really focusing on doing it has paid off to the point where I'm now doing it naturally. I like your example. And again, even as you're, as you can guess, you're pointing out, just, just being able to notice that your mind is wandering um, and coming back and, you know, as you should point out, either playing cards with your, your kids or doing whatever it is with, especially with your kids, um, is, uh, just such a wonderful experience and being able to do that. Cause I could not, I, I could not, I guess I didn't have the tools to recognize it and certainly come back to the present moment. Um, uh, before I started practicing and before I recovered from uh, this depression. Right, and I, and I think I think to me it, it feels as though it's added such tremendous uh, resilience um, from recurrent depression because when my mind starts going those places and I I you know occasionally have you know moments of of criticism and sadness um, but it doesn't go back to those really deep dark places and uh, I can you know you can you can notice it and stop it right. In addition to mindfulness, how are you staying mentally healthy at this point? Um, certainly a lot of mindfulness. Um, you know, focusing on um, what's meaningful for me in life, both in terms of uh, attending to my family and attending to myself, uh, taking um managing my schedule a little bit so that uh, when I start noticing perhaps some burnout or exhaustion uh, that I take some time uh, for myself um, and focusing some work on um, on helping others and um, um, you know kind of similar to the work that you've been doing it can be very fulfilling um, to try and uh, sh- one share, uh, share experiences um, and share tools for self-care with uh, other healthcare providers, especially by you know, the surgery residents that uh, we train. And um, you know, I've recently uh, been uh, charged uh, by our departmental chairman to you know start a wellness committee for our department, and we're working on kind of creating a culture of wellness, and that can be very fulfilling work. 
it's a little bit scary and I have to be careful about setting goals and, you know, having some of those perfectionist tendencies and grandiose ideas about what could happen. Um, but, um, but that all adds a lot of meaning to my life and, uh, it's very helpful. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I know you mentioned earlier a big piece that you wanted to share with others was just this sense of hope and being able to get through it and how wonderful things can be on the other end. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we end, I'm wondering if you have other kinds of suggestions or tips for any men or anybody who might be listening, going through a challenging time with their mental health currently. Oh, boy. Um, you know, I, I, one, I, I, you know, I, in my mind, this is all a spectrum and we experience all sorts of things in life and life is, is, um, Life has all its challenges, but it's all, in, in my mind, normal. Like this is, this is. I, I do not feel that people are abnormal because we experience depression. Um, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, it's uh, and it's nothing to hide because we need. You know, the only way we can all get through this. Uh, and live more fulfilling lives and have a more fulfilling world and uh, uh, and is is to work together and to share our experiences and thoughts and to lean on one another so you know reach out um, talk there's plenty of us have been through very similar experiences that was very helpful for me to learn that there's so many other people that have similar thought patterns um, to myself, um, and have had similar experiences, um, that we are not alone. You are, I guarantee you are not alone and you have nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and I, I, I know that there are, is help for all of us, uh, and, and lean on whoever you can. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Excellent words of wisdom. Um, so, hey, Mike, I want to thank you very much for your time. Um, I think it's incredible that you're writing about your experience and sharing, um, just particularly given your profession. And I think it's so helpful for other doctors in the field that uh, you're truly a role model for for physicians. Thank you so much. And again, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And um we also continue to do this together and, uh, and, and deconstruct the stigma. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks again for your time and make sure you stay healthy. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.